Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday. Today we're talking with uscfootball.com beat writer and columnist Dan Weber, who knows everything that's been going on around this USC football team. It's been interesting, to say the least. We want to talk about Utah, get to a lot of your questions. If you have any questions for us, drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com, or leave us a voicemail, 641-715-3900 is our number, an extension 816 816- 646, or you can go to our website, peristylepodcast.com. Click on the left side of the page from your device or your computer, and you can leave a voicemail that way as well. Of course, you can go to itunes.com slash peristylepodcast. We've been getting a lot of reviews in, everyone giving us five stars. We love it. Keep doing that. It, it helps boost the show and, and, you know, increases our reach. It does a re- really, it really helps us a lot to go to iTunes and subscribe to the show and review it and give us a good rating. We really appreciate you guys doing that. Lots of great feedback from that. And just want to let people know on the questions, we just got, we got a bunch of complaints. We want to try to make sure all your voicemail questions have to be under a minute. We won't play them. Please don't send me two pages worth of, of written stuff for your email questions. I can't read all that stuff. It just takes a long time. We're getting so many questions in. If you send a long question, we're probably not going to read it. So please try to keep it short, keep it concise and be specific of who you want the question to. Today, the questions will all be for Dan Weber, who's right here. What's up, Dan? How you doing? Oh, pretty good. Um, uh- it's uh, a lot more fun to be talking about, uh, you know, what happened last Saturday than the uh, than the week before, or the week before. Yeah, <laughs> very true. And we actually usually we get so many questions after a loss, which we did, and we sent records. Uh, we got a whole bunch of questions even after this win too. So people are interested, Dan, and uh, want to start you out with some questions. But just wanted to thank um, our sponsor first for the Tuesday show, Michael Moline Real Estate. We got to run into Michael again. Saturday against Utah in the press box. He, of course, does all the, uh, he helps out with the stats on the big stats team that USC has there. But if you're in SoCal, you need some help with real estate. Uh, Michael can definitely help you out. So go to michaelmalinerealestate.com or call him at 310-275-4688. And uh, you can, we'll have more information, uh, a little ad at the end of the show too, if you want to get more information on Michael. And, uh, Dan, I thought this was an interesting question to, or comment, I guess we could start off with and get your thoughts on it. So here we go. Uh, Chris from Delaware, your absolute biggest fan. Ryan, king of USC. My question is for Dan. Dan, uh, I've been out of the country for about three weeks. Um, I'm sure it's been pretty humdrum around there, but if you could give me a quick synopsis. Uh, you could leave out the Washington game. I'm sure that was a route. Sarks really got their number. And it's hard to imagine that at one time we were actually thinking about hiring Chris Peterson, uh, that'll teach everybody out there to second-guess Pat Hayden. Guys, he's not the best AD in the country on accident. So that leaves Notre Dame and Utah, which when I left, Utah was very, very good. So that couldn't have been easy. Isn't it going to be crazy, Dan, if you said that we lost to Washington, but yet we beat third-ranked Utah, which would lead me to say, obviously, that that sounds like bad coaching and bad management. But I'm sure that didn't happen. Thanks, guys. So happy to be out of Siberia and back to a place where things make sense. Fight on. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure for uh, 
Cliff in Delaware, I don't know what more we need to say. Cliff's got it all right. He didn't uh, didn't have to ask a question at all. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you don't want to try to predict. This is why I purposely don't predict games, although I will say this, Cliff. Uh, when the, uh, the spot went from three-and-a-half point USC favorite over number three and unbeaten Utah to six-and-a-half point spot on Saturday, I thought, you know what? He could make that case. It, it clearly was a case that could be made. Uh, if you looked at how they played uh, Notre Dame with about two and a half practices under uh, Clay Helton, you know, that was pretty darn competitive. Uh, the 21 straight points going to, going ahead 31-24, you know, at the, uh, after three quarters pretty much. Uh, that was a pretty competitive USC football team against a Notre Dame team that really played well. Uh, and, and, you know, had a great crowd behind him and all that. So you had to think, you know, if they got another week and, uh, they figure out some things and start doing some things, uh, uh, probably running the ball the way they need to run it, not the way they were trying to run it all the time. Uh, if they, um, you know, if they just, you know, get themselves, you know, stop doing the things that hurt themselves, you know, then you'd say, okay, they've got a chance. Now, I was talking to Coach Bob Conley today, the offensive line coach, and he said, though, however, if you'd have said, we're going to be able to run the ball and probably be able to pick up the blitzes pretty well against a really good Utah defense, and we're going to do that without Max Turk, without Chad Wheeler, without Toa Lobodon, eh, he didn't even finish that sentence. It's just like, you know, how do you do that? How do you have a third-string center come in and, pretty much play flawlessly in Khalil Rogers. Uh, how do you have Zach Manor go to left, uh, go to left tackle and, you know, start a true freshman at right tackle and survive and score 42 points on top of it? Well, you know, it helps if you get a true freshman, uh, with three interceptions and one of them, you know, a pick six. But, uh, yeah, uh, don't try to make too much sense out of any of this or try to even, you know, get ahead of it just probably uh hopefully from now on you just sit back and enjoy it and see what happens i mean it, it, based on today's practice on tuesday's practice this team has the capacity to get better and to build it looked like today's practice they built on saturday's game that's what you want that they they're trusting one another they're trusting their coaches um and you know, that's where you get to be, that's where you get to be a good football team. When you trust what you're doing, you trust the guy next to you, you trust the coach that's calling the plays. I know Cody was saying he likes, you know, getting under center, for example, now. Uh, and said to, to Clay, hey, just call the play. I'll do it any way you want me to. We'll make it happen. We'll make plays. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of what they're doing. So, um, don't try to outguess them, outguess what's going to happen. Just try to figure out uh, how you're going to enjoy it uh, the rest of the way and hope they keep playing this way. All right, let's go to John uh, in Brea, California. He says, the Peristyle podcast has changed my life. Wow. John, thank you. I, I feel sorry for your life. I'm just kidding. But thank you. I'm glad that we could uh, to help you. He says, many thanks to you and your guests for putting this together each week. My question's for Dan Weber. Uh, the last time we went through this with Coach O, there were a few players that emerged from the doghouse and were given a chance after 
languishing on the bench for whatever reason. Buck Allen is the prime example. This time with Coach Helton, have you noticed anyone getting significant playing time and contributing that otherwise uh, would be on the bench if Steve Sarkeesian was still the coach? Thanks again. Fight on, John and Brea. Well, I mean, I, I think just one was just because of uh, you know the injury to Toa Lobaton. You got Khalil Rogers. I don't think we ever understood why Khalil wasn't getting his chances. He had some injuries and, you know, this and that, but he always looked like a guy who could play the way he played Saturday, and he never really got that chance. I think, you know, he got one start and he got hurt, and then, you know, something always seemed to happen, but, you know, there he was just waiting to, you know, to get that chance, and darned if uh, he didn't get it, and take every advantage of it. As far as I think what's going to happen now, and, and Clay talked about this today, and this is one of the things I think we have to give Steve Sarkeesian credit for, is he played a lot of guys, and he played people not, I don't think, because they had been recruited with high, you know big reputations and all that. He played guys because, uh, you know, there wasn't much to choose from between, say, the you know, the incoming freshmen and some of the, you know, the upper class and all that, and it just gave them all a chance. And I think Clay said today that's starting to pay off because when you start losing guys the way, uh, you know, you lose a Marvell Tell or you uh, end up with a couple of tight ends that can't finish the game uh, and, you know, Trey Madden can't start the game, all of those things. I mean, I think a lot of the things they did for this team uh, to get a lot of those guys early game action, you know, will pay off, uh, you know, from here on out. So uh, so I don't know if – I don't know that – I really don't think necessarily there was anybody in the doghouse. I think, you know, previously uh, there was a doghouse, and, and I don't know question Buck was in it. And some of it was just if you were not recruited highly by somebody, you know, then, you know, recruiting was such a big deal. I don't know that, that this team has any of those kinds of, you know, doghouse players, uh, but uh, but I do think they're, you know, I had a list, I think, of 11 yesterday that uh, guys that very possibly are going to get their chance and, and more by circumstances and, and injuries than anything, but um, I, don't, I don't think there's a... I don't know, Ryan. Can you think of a, of a doghouse guy? The, I, I'm not sure. The only one I could think of is, like, Quentin Powell, like, was kind of had a weird reason for not being on the field, but we haven't really seen him again, so maybe that was a legitimate reason. But he was one guy I thought of. Yeah, I mean, he's every day he flashes and, you know, does something. I mean, he, he gets places quickly, and he, he makes plays. Now, that you know, they work on, the, you know, the punting a lot and punt coverage and all that kind of thing, and he's going to make plays in space, and I think he's always going to do that, you know, whether he'll find a regular spot. I mean, one of the problems is, there are so many linebackers. I mean, they just have a whole lot of linebackers that it's not that easy, you know, for a guy or a Michael Hutchings, uh, those guys to, you know, find a place out there uh, where there are, there's enough, you know, playing time uh, other than, you know, on special teams. And I do think, uh, you know, I think some of the guys you might see and we're seeing more of are walk-ons who, uh, like a James Tolan, uh, Joel Foy, uh, um, you know, we always knew that George Katrieb and Robbie Collins and those guys were going to contribute. But I think you're seeing, you know, Ruben Peters, for example, you're seeing more of those guys in, uh, and, uh, you know, on special teams coverage in roles like that. And, 
you know, they've been doing a heck of a job. So uh, that might be one of the places you'll see guys show up. But again, not not doghouse guys, just guys that are going to get a chance that maybe, um, you know, hadn't gotten one before. Uh, Tarek had a question for us. He said, will we keep seeing the aggression on the defensive line going forward that that has been absent all season? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they, they, they said they didn't do anything differently. They really did. I mean, it's stuff that they've always had, you know, that they could have been doing. You know, they're doing more twists and more, you know, stunts. And uh, I think Sean Cody was talking about it the other day. He liked the fact that they were they were blitzing a time or two when uh, it wasn't an obvious passing down. It was just, you know, strictly a run situation, and they were getting people in all the gaps. And, uh, you know, they were just clogging up the, you know, the run lanes, and, and they were actually getting – you know, penetration, you know, and against the best running back that they, you know, played against all year. And you just think that will build on itself, you know, that they can't avoid, you know, with having that kind of success against uh, Devontae Booker, you got to think, okay, we get these guys. I mean, the thing I didn't like about the way they approached the defense is they weren't getting people moving. They weren't getting in motion, and this is not, you know, most USC teams that we've seen that have been successful aren't successful by just sitting there and waiting and hoping, you know, that they can react when, uh, you know, the play starts and all that. And that whole idea of, you know, playing the game on your side of the line of scrimmage just doesn't work. And uh, by getting these guys moving, getting them, uh, you know, through the gaps, uh, you know, working, really working on penetration, they didn't get – that many sacks on Travis Wilson, but they certainly put, you know, made him uncomfortable. They, you know, the thing that they really said they wanted to do against Kevin Hogan and Stanford and didn't do it all. Uh, they did make it, make it work against uh, Travis Wilson. So you would think we're going to see that the rest of the way that, that, that just, you know, was exactly what this team needs to be doing. And uh, it's hard to imagine they won't, you know, do more of that and just, uh, you know, build on that Utah game. I mean, that's the great thing about a, a game like the Utah game and a little bit about the Notre Dame game where they at least did it for about 36 minutes is you can build on that. And uh, and the kids build on it themselves, I think. And so uh, so I do think, yeah, you're going to see more of that. Uh, Nick just wanted to know about uh, updates on any of the injured players. Okay, uh both of the tight ends, um, you know, they kind of got lucky. I think uh, uh, Taylor McNamara's had a uh, dislocated shoulder before. The last time it had a uh, he had a torn labrum with it, and this time no torn labrum, no surgery needed. Uh, he was out there in his uh, uh, yellow no contact jersey, but feeling pretty good. And he said he he thinks he can go contact tomorrow, at least some. Uh, but uh, he said he, he's pretty much good to go. Uh, Tyler uh, Petit got his foot stepped on, a lot of pain, no break. That was one of those ones. I thought that would have been the most potential, you know, when you get your your foot really, you know, crunched. And, uh, you know, there are just so many bones there that, you know, you can get a break and there's just nothing you can do. Well, they got a break and he, he didn't break it. Uh, he had a lot of pain in it today. Uh, so uh, he wasn't in football cleats, but uh, but he was out there, and you know, full pads and uh I think uh, I think he's got a pretty good shot at, at being able to go back to Northern California and play against uh, you know his home, almost home I guess guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, Marvell Tell was yeah Marvell Tell 
out in shorts and jersey. He's got that. He got a broken collarbone. He's going to be out minimum six weeks. So he's going to be a guy, you know, if they can get in a championship game, maybe uh, he could get back. Um, let's see, Rasheem Green banged up his knee, but it's it must be more of a you know a pain issue and just a bruise. Uh, and they were working with him on some rehab stuff, but he was out and you know in full gear. Um, but 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 we didn't see uh, Trey Madden. That sore knee has just uh, really uh, been limiting him. I thought Kevon Seymour had a really good practice, and he looks like he's uh, he's pretty much back. As far as the two wide receivers, I had heard that they might be 85% back. Stephen Mitchell with his uh, sprained ankle, and um, uh, Darius Rogers with his uh, ham or his quad. Uh, I guess it, yeah, he's got a hamstring. I'm sorry, and. Uh, he didn't look that far back. I mean, they did run some patterns, uh, not much. Uh, Darius got out there late. Um, you know, I mean, I'm thinking it's about a 50-50 for them this weekend. I mean, I think, you know, there's a chance you wouldn't want to absolutely predict it, uh, at this point. Uh, I don't think, you know, I don't think, I just, I don't think we know, um, uh, where they are. I think that, that gets us pretty much up to date on uh, where, oh, and Chad Wheeler cleared uh, from the, you know, the concussion syndrome, full go, ready to go, uh, you know, everything is, uh, so he's back at left tackle with uh, Zach Banner going back to right tackle. All right. Thanks for that. Uh, we have a voicemail question for you. Here you go. Hey, Ryan, Andrew from D.C., question for you and Dan Weber. I know that turnovers are a part of the game, but... Arizona State and Utah, a lot of similarities there in that we won big because of our ability to win the turnover battle by a large margin. Um, going in Arizona State, perhaps more of the luckier variety. Uh, going forward, my question is, can we win a big game, a tough game, without winning the turnover battle by a large margin? Thanks a lot. Well, I mean, I think they... I think the key there is uh, you don't give it away. You don't necessarily, I don't know that you have to absolutely win it by a large margin, but you better not lose it. I think that, you know, they, they've got to, and I think they've been, you know, they've taken care of the ball pretty well with Cody. I think the way they're, you know, running the offense now with more, you know, under center and then more giving Cody the option to, to really, uh, you know, if they uh, back off on Juju, for example, or Adore, uh to take that, uh, you know, that wide receiver screen, they're blocking it pretty well. It's pretty much a run play the way they're doing it now. They're they're moving the chains, and that's pretty pretty safe stuff. Uh, so uh, you know, I think the way they're taking care of the ball, and and you know, Pete's teams, we didn't ever consider it an aberration when they won the turnover battle, and uh, this team, I mean, I did like all year long. They thought they they really thought about turnovers. They talked, you know, if we're giving Sark credit, I think that was another thing that, uh, you know, I think he he had the right emphasis on, uh, you know, the whole Pete thing that it's all about the ball. And, um, you know, obviously they've got some guys like Cameron Smith who just has a knack. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's a linebacker, a freshman linebacker who can, drop into coverage and still, you know, keep his eyes on the quarterback. And that's, uh, you know, I know they talk that a lot. Coach Sermon with the linebackers really talks about, you know, keeping their heads up, keeping their eyes, 
uh, you know, and, uh, open and alert and, and all that, that you're seeing that, uh, that play out. So, uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it's obviously if, if they, if they get the big turnover margin, they've got a great opportunity. And this is one of the things we haven't been seeing very much of with, without winning those turnover battles is you don't get the short fields. And what a difference when you give yourself, you know, a couple of short fields and, and, you know, the, uh, uh, the way that picks up the offense. And I, I think the thing that you saw, uh, Saturday is the offense did the defense a lot of favors with four, you know, fairly long, uh, uh, drives. And the defense doesn't have to be out there all the time. And then the defense goes out and gets the ball back for the offense. And, and that's stuff we haven't been seeing. That's stuff we just haven't been seeing. Uh, and that again takes you back a decade as to that, that was the old formula. Uh, and, um, uh, I think, uh, the combination of those two things, I think the, the long drives with the offense, you know, helps the defense. You don't have to, you know, necessarily, you know, get a takeaway. But, uh, but it, 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 you know, the two working together, I think, are, are the keys as much as anything. But, uh, They'll take the takeaways, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, Chris had a question, Dan. He said, I noticed Saturday, right off the bat, USC used corner and safety blitzes. I also noticed more stunts up front. Although the secondary didn't get a sack, I believe that these different looks contributed to the problems Wilson had passing the football and also helped when we only rushed three and actually got a sack with a three-man rush. Do you agree? Why is it taking so long? to use some different packages and stunts. Is it possible Sark didn't want to or that Clay Helton told Wilcox to do it? The pressure on the QB was the difference in this game versus our losses. Your thoughts, Chris? Uh, Chris, I think the first thing they wanted to do was basically force Wilson to throw the ball, and which meant they had to stop Booker. I think to stop Booker, they really had to get penetration, however they could do that, whether they were bringing guys from the secondary, whether they were – you know, twisting or stunting guys up front, whether they're bringing linebackers, whatever they could do. I mean, they don't do, you know, they still don't do a lot of it. Uh, I mean, not an over, you know, compared to some teams. But uh, I just think they knew they had to be moving. They had to, you know, plug gaps. And um, then, you know, I think they feel, and I thought, I like the idea they hit a really clear game plan in mind, whenever anybody you talk to, they, they all on everybody on defense said, if we can force him, you know, force Wilson to throw the ball, we win the game. So they absolutely wanted to take Booker out of the game. And it's the thing that's driving the, you know, the Utah fans crazy because he only carried it 14 times. And they're like, what happened? What happened? Well, when you're down 28, four, you know, 14, 28, 17 at half, you're down a couple of scores it's really hard to grind the ball out, you know, and you, and you give up the, you know, USC got the ball to start the second half. That was really a tough situation for a team that, you know, likes to grind it out. So uh, I think they did a lot of things that all, you know, worked well, but, uh, but you're right. They did a lot of different things. Uh, I, and I don't think we could ever get a good answer as to why weren't they doing those things? Was it a, you know, we've talked this, you know, today about there's so much more trust on this team, uh, trust between the players, trust uh, of the coaches, uh, the coaches trusting the players to do the right thing. I mean, there's just that sense. And 
I don't think that sense of trust was there uh, earlier in the season. And, you know, we can all, you know, maybe psychoanalyze exactly what was going on, you know, that there wasn't that trust there, but it wasn't there. And uh, they they tended to kind of sit on things because they maybe didn't trust people to, you know, to get the job done. But you you just have to. you got to trust that, you know, this is what we're going to do and everybody's going to do it right. And I think the thing that they talked about, the difference between this game and the Notre Dame game was there were a lot, you know, a lot of missed assignments on defense against Notre Dame. And um, that's why that game flipped around so much, where they, you know, held them for so long and then all of a sudden they didn't hold them at all. Uh, where they said, I mean, Clay said that he thought there was just one missed assignment on defense the entire game. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So, so if that happens, you then can trust them to do some things. Uh, so let you know again. Hope that that is the you know the pattern going forward. Is yeah, we trust you guys to you know get the job done, and everybody's going to be on the right page, you know, same page. Everybody's going to do the same thing, <clears throat> and we won't have to uh, you know maybe oh let's don't do that because what if so and so doesn't do it right or what if so well I think they're they're past that now. You just have to go out and play. This is our best shot. I mean, who would have ever thought you can bring in your third string, you know, center who hadn't even gotten to snap the ball once the whole week uh, because they'd moved him to guard, and uh, he's going to do, you know, the kind of job Khalil Rogers did. I mean, again, you just got to trust him. You got a lot of talent on this team. I mean, I think that's one of the things that was kind of bugging me a little bit about people uh, writing in and, you know, saying. We just got to face it. This team doesn't have much talent. This team just, you know, they're not that good. Yeah, I never and, bought that. Huh? Never bought that. No, I mean, you know, and you talk, the Utah kids were just saying, man, you know, they picked up all our blitzes. They did this. They did, you know, I mean, and they obviously gave Booker the worst game he's had all year by far. And uh, uh, they, they weren't doing the right things. I don't think there's any question about it. Why that was. We never got a really good answer <laughs> <laughs> as to why that that was, and now it isn't. And I guess you could say, well, they were weren't doing the right things, and now there's a, a new coach, and they're doing the right things the last couple of weeks, huh? And in practice, I think they're doing more fundamental stuff. I mean, they're letting the defensive coaches coach them more technique, and not a lot of time, but just enough time to start practice when they, you know, work on you know, stances and, um, and, uh, you know, staying under control and angled tackling and, uh, shedding blockers. And, and you know, it, it, it's not a lot of time, but it's just a reinforcement. Um, and, um, you know, you see guys now, for example, on the sidelines working on their, um, on their, uh, pants rush moves, their swim moves or whatever. And, you know, showing one another, you'll see a couple of defensive linemen doing that. And that's stuff we hadn't been seeing. And this is a, you know, where you see a team where maybe they take responsibility into their own hands more and more that, uh, that they're going to be free to make plays. And it's, uh, it's up to them to make the plays. And, um, I think we're seeing more of that. And I think you're seeing the results that, uh, that guys are able to make. And that game as it went on, you saw guys taking more and more responsibility you know, for what they were doing and uh, doing it pretty well. 
Let's go to uh, Jeff in Fountain Valley, Dan. He said, am I right in noticing that most of the, the completed passes USC gives up are coming against the zone defense, but all of the pass interference penalties they've given up have come on man defense? I don't know if you noticed that. I, I, don't, I didn't really, but get your thoughts, Dan. I think that's generally true. And I do think, you know, at times, you, uh, the, you know, the complaint about, you know, zone is, man, you know, it's zone, but it's not prevent. Uh, and I think there really is that, you know, that difficulty in knowing exactly what can you give up and, you know, what won't you give up and how do you get there from here? You know, if you're, you know, if you're playing behind them, um, I, you know, and I do think, um, yeah, they do have to work on, um, um, how, how they're using, I mean, they talked a lot about it last week about how they're using their hands. And, um, I think, you know, only of, of the two on big, you know, um, uh, biggie, I think only one of those was a real, uh, pass interference. I thought, you know, they were pushing, you know, they were both involved i thought he had better position on the one where he got called for it but uh, you know he you get a reputation in the pac-12 and it's sure a lot easier just to call what you've seen on film uh than to actually call what you see uh and, and you know it's the pac-12 and you just gotta you know the ball's up in the air there's any kind of contact they get nervous and they think you know they gotta throw that flag so they just have to be you know, a little bit smarter than that. But, you know, again, this game, or just the five penalties. So I think USC will, will take that, uh, uh, you know, any day uh, and, and you know, learn from it and, and, and go on. But, yeah, and I think that would be the norm, that you're going to see more pass interference on man and you're going to see more, um, you know, underneath completions on the zone. I mean, that's 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 just the deal. When you play those, uh, you know, that's that's the trade off. You know, you're going to, yeah, you have, um, and that's why they, uh, pay the defensive coordinators the big bucks, uh, to make that, you know, that call and, and figure out which is, uh, you know, which is percentage wise the best, the better call. Uh, and, uh, I, I don't know that there's anything you can do about that. You just have to, you know, technique wise, uh, just get a little bit better, but this is, they're working at it. This is a team that, you know, they want to be good, and, um, you know, they're still pretty darn young. And, um, you know, they didn't let Utah really get away from them, though. They, you know, they, you had those moments, but you didn't ever have the sense that, you know, other than the one punt return and a couple of those, you know, breakdowns like that, you didn't have any sense that USC was kind of letting Utah, you know, get away from them at all. Um. Matt had a question. He said, make sure Dan Weber gets credit, the credit he deserves, for telling us about two spring practices in that Cameron Smith was much better with his cover skills than expected and was going to be a player. Thank you both for all the great work. Beat Cal from Matt. Uh, thank you for remembering. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was pretty much stunned. Cause, uh, you, we know what we know, and we watch, you know, video and – now, I try not to watch too much until the kid is absolutely coming, and then you want to see what you see. But I'm not sure that we got to see enough. And some of that is who they're playing in high school and do they throw the ball and all of the things. So, you know, I don't think we knew how does he how does he turn his hips and 
how does he play in space? I mean, Peter Sermon didn't know. We were talking to him after the game, and he said, I didn't know he could do that. I wasn't sure. Because, uh, you know, at first there were, you know, the thought that is this just a two-down guy, and third down he's got to come out. But when you watch him watch the football, when you watch him jump the route, when you – he did – I mean, the one interception, he reminded you of Matt Grudegood when he kind of, uh, Matt Grudegood used to purposely like look away so that the quarterback would think he wasn't even looking and he knew where the ball was coming. And then Lova Tatupa did that too. And he's doing it better than anybody since then. I mean, I haven't seen anybody that could, you know, look like he's maybe not in the play and he knows exactly. And and one of the things he was he's really good at at feeling where that tight end is behind him. Uh, he just seems to have you know the, the old you know cliche eyes in the back of his head. He just has a feel you know for it, and you know he's kind of leaning one way, and the next thing I mean on the one interception he broke well before Wilson threw the ball. He knew where the ball was going because he knew there was only one receiver in the area. He knew where that guy was going to be, and uh, but he did that. In the, he he did that. To, you know, every quarterback on this team, I think, in the spring. Yeah. I mean, and he did it one night to Sam Darnold in in the summer. He he did it like two or three straight times. It was like, or was it? I'm not really sure it was Darnold. It might have been. Uh, it might have been. Uh, gosh, I'm I'm thinking the you know, Ricky uh, Town. The trans? Yeah. Anyway, that's right. It was and. Uh, uh, he, he, he's just, it's no surprise. I mean, the only thing is, I guess he, he dropped a couple earlier in the year and they were all on him, you know, for, you know, go on, go to the jug machine and start catching the ball and all that. But it was never a case of, uh, he wasn't going to be in the right place. I mean, his only thought was, he said the other night was just make sure I catch it because he's going to be, he's going to be in the area. And, uh, I don't even know if you can teach that, and I'm not even sure you can coach it. You just get out of his way and free him up to make those kinds of plays. And, uh, I mean, I think that's what, that's what Pete's defenses did, is they freed guys like Grudigan and Tatupu, uh, to make those kinds of plays. And Troy Palomalo, obviously. Uh, but, uh, but that's what the, you know, that's what they certainly did with him. Uh, and, and you gotta give everybody credit for putting him in places where he can do, you know, what he did uh, Saturday. But, um, but yeah, this is not a surprise having watched him, you know, in the spring and the summer. And thanks for remembering. Yeah. Uh, here's a voicemail question for you. Hey, guys, how are you? This message is for Dan Weber. This is Don from the East Coast, right on. I'm calling because um, I wanted you guys to kind of take a look at uh, – what I noticed this week is that the reason why we were able to win the game, not just because of the defense, but because we were able to play with a balance. Um, we didn't put so much pressure on Cody. And due to the run game giving us balance, it pretty much opened up the passes. And I noticed also, too, he was kind of, you know, he hit the tight end a couple of times with some crossing patterns. And to me, if USC continues to do that, there's no one that's going to be able to stop us. I think that if we use the run game to set up the pass as opposed to the pass setting up the run game, um, pretty much that's pretty much how we can be, and I think we can be great like that. I just hope that they continue to do so. 
Um, just wanted to see your guys' perspective on that. Once again, you guys are doing an awesome job. Um, fight on all day, every day from the East Coast. Thanks, guys. Yeah, good observations from the East Coast. Uh, uh, I, mean, I think this USC football, there was a classic pattern. And I don't know that there are a lot of teams that can do it. Uh, you know, you look at Alabama, Notre Dame, Michigan, those kinds of programs. You think Texas ought to be able to do it. But uh, there are programs, I think, that can play kind of old-style classic football where they line up, where they knock you off the line of scrimmage, where they run right at you. You know, they hit stuff in there quickly. They run sweeps. They run pitches. They they try to outnumber you at the edge. And then when you get so, you know, focused on the fact that you better be able to stop the run, then they throw the ball on you. They throw play action. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not – you're not reinventing the wheel here. I mean, you're just – this is the way it works. And uh, – USC is going back to kind of old-style classic USC football. They're still not throwing it to the tight end yet. But um, other than that, and, and they are doing more of the wide receiver screen stuff, but they're, they're running it more as a running play. And as a safe running play, if, if teams are going to give it to you, you got to take it. You don't take it. I mean, this is some of the, I think, that people went, when people went crazy with the bubble screen when it was forced, when they were throwing it when they didn't have an advantage. Uh, you just don't do that. And, they, and you got to run it as a real running play with blockers so that you've got, you know, the advantage at the point of attack. But, uh, but yeah, I think the balance, in, um, you know, has always been the case. If USC could run the ball, they're going to be able to throw the ball. I mean, they've, they've got too much talent at quarterbacks and wide receivers to not be able to, you know, throw the ball if they're, you know, successfully, uh, you know, running the ball. So I think the key was uh, – you know, the other night is what they exactly said was was the way it happened. If they could stop the run and take the ball out of Booker's hands and make Wilson try to beat them, uh, and if they could run the ball themselves, uh, they win the game. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, but I think with you in USC's case, if they can run the ball successfully, they're going to throw it well as well. And, um, and that formula is going to work. I mean, and, and you're exactly right. That, that balance is exactly what they need. Um, yeah, the rest of the questions, well, we had one, like, taught, well, maybe we'll do that one first. Uh, we had a McNair one and then some coaching stuff, AD and coaching things. Um, but I'll, I'll do the McNair one. We haven't talked about it in a while, and then we'll get into the coaching stuff. Uh, John said, with the McNair lawsuit, if he wins, what can USC gain out of it? And can they get the championship back and all the victories for Coach Carroll back? This is my question because they – they are screwed when it comes to the scholarships. I really think they should have contested everything in court. Here I go again. Thanks, Ryan, from John. Yeah, John, I mean, you can't get them back if you don't ask for them. And, and I don't mean, please, sir, can we have them back? <laughs> you have to ask for them in a way that, you know, where they realize, as Penn State did, where they realized Penn State had them. You have, I mean, the NCAA made up you know, as, as vile and awful as everything that happened at Penn State was, the NCAA had no business legislating, you know, or coming after them and uh, adjudicating whatever, you know, in that particular case. They had no, and they knew it, and they made it up, and their emails proved it. And, um, you know, the state of Pennsylvania was going after them, and they said, okay, you can have that stuff back. didn't cost them a dime to give it all back to them. Uh, I think USC was in the same situation and passed 
when the um, you know the first ruling came down and we knew the judge had seen the emails and the documents and said you know what he thought the NSA had done to USC and USC scattered and hid and didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to react to it and didn't want to respond and didn't come up with a game plan and still allowed the NCA to kind of, you know, that one time they practically threw Pat out of the office, you know, where he heard what, you know, the NCA was going to do with Penn State and said, well, what about us? And they laughed at him and said, no, get out of here. And uh, because they knew USC wasn't going to do anything, USC wasn't going to force the issue. Uh, I mean, I wish they would have. They had a, you know, there was somebody who was willing to say, totally underwrite whatever action USC chose to take against the NCAA. And I never was for, you know, trying to, you know, stop everything. And, you know, they would have held those scholarships against USC and would have used it against the program for years and years and years. But once USC had the ability to know that the NCAA had, had you know, all the corruption involved, and, uh, you know, the rules breaking at the NCA had done in order to take USC down. And, and what they did to Todd McNair, USC probably should have at that point demanded all the documents, threatened whatever they needed to threat, threaten in terms of getting those documents, and then, you know, come back to the NCA with a proposal and said, this is what we're going to get back from you now. Or, you know, there will be really major consequences. And uh, they got it wrong from the beginning, and it didn't look like anybody at USC wanted to admit through this whole five years that, gosh, maybe we got it wrong originally. Maybe some people were right about what they said was happening here, and maybe we should have listened, but we didn't. Uh, and now we don't want to admit that we were wrong. I don't know. I mean, that's it's hard to get people running, you know, gigantic enterprises like USC to admit, you know, they're uh, they're wrong, especially when they're out raising six billion dollars, uh, the highest, you know, the largest fundraising campaign in, um, at the time in, uh, you know, uh, higher education in America. But um, but yeah, I would think they need to put together a demand for what they're gonna ask the NCA, and and the only way you get that back is if you threaten the NCA. I mean, Ohio State threatened them. Miami threatened them, uh, Penn State threatened them, um, bum, bum, uh, Oregon, eh, they had, had somebody on the committee and they just didn't agree and they just held out and held out and held out and the NCAA finally kind of let them off with a, you know, semi-slap on the wrist. Uh, but uh, at Auburn basically had the SEC behind them and um even though the NCA knew exactly what was going on, they you know, with Cam Newton, they just said, Oh, well, we'll change the way they changed the rules for USC to make USC more guilty, uh, or guilty of things that weren't against the rules, uh, with uh, Cam Newton and in, in uh, Auburn it looks like they went the other way, where they came up with a new rule that said, Well, if the player himself isn't really absolutely positively aware of what may have happened, even though what may have happened might have been really against the rules, well, we won't do anything, you know. Well, and, and yes, he should have been aware of all that was going on and, and should have made, but I think one of the things they could have done is taken it public way more than they did. 
and you know shouted you know they shouted you know screamed and shouted and done everything they could have done to make the world aware one of the problems was that it would be it was really even though the entire national media has turned around and realizes usc got screwed the nca is wrong here it's been hard for people to do much writing about that or talking about it just because usc hasn't defended itself if usc would have through this entire period, defended itself and made the case that is there uh, to be made, it would have made it easier for other people, you know, to defend them. And uh, and they chose not to do that. And that's uh, pretty, that's kind of sad because there are a lot of players hurt, a lot of um, student athletes who didn't get the college experience they should have gotten. It didn't help USC's name and brand and fan base and, all of that, um, and USC survived it really well when you think about it. But, uh, but um, you know, I I would wish that they would use the McNair case. Uh, but uh, you wouldn't. You, right now, you don't have any uh, hope that that they will, um, based on how they've approached the whole case. Well, let's. Uh, last topic is going to be about the uh, about Pat Hayden and Clay Helton and potential future head coach. So let me play this voicemail question for you. This message is for Dan Weber. Um, I am a longtime supporter and alumnus of USC, as well as my wife. This is Don in Santa Barbara. Um, I think we're getting the cart before the horse. I think we should not be worried about what our new football coach would be, but we should be interested in what our new athletic director is going to be like. I think he should have an excellent relationship with the NCAA. He should have an expensive, extensive background and a big-time program. He should formally uh, be from one of the big four conferences. And he should be an individual with no ties to USC, have an excellent rapport with other athletic directors. I'm going to include this note into the president along with my donation this year. Uh, requesting that this is the time that this uh, changes should be made. Uh, I think now, with what's been happening over the last year or two, uh, we need a totally and complete new start. Thanks a lot. I think, you know, I think, Don, is the point he makes is a good one. Um, in terms of, you know, how do you get to a football coach when, if that's, if he's going to be the product of a search when there's really no confidence in the people who have been doing the searches? I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, in the last five years, USC's had, I guess, three wins over top five programs, two of them by the interim coaches, after they had to fire the head coaches who had coached a whole lot more games, had one win between them, a, a, you know, a top five win, whereas the two interim guys, the guys who'd, you know, been passed over or weren't, you know, considered head coaching material, you know, have two top five wins. So, you know, it's just, and you know, the, the decision-making process hasn't been good uh USC finds it hard, I think, to open up those processes. I mean, and, and, and one of the things, there is a culture at USC, 
And if you look at that campus and you look at where they're going and you look at all the things that are happening and, and whatever, you say, wow, this place is spectacular. They've done unbelievable stuff, uh, you know, in the last however many years you want to go back. I mean, when you, I think of where, where, you know, things were, in, I guess my first year of 2002 covering this team and then uh, where they are now in terms of the campus and the, where the you know the academics are and all of that kind of thing, you just say, wow, you, you know, you couldn't have done a whole lot better job, and yet uh, you end up with, uh, uh, in terms of athletics, you end up with people who maybe haven't done such a good job. If you look at, you know, the NCAA, you know, the previous coach, you know, the basketball coach, the football coach, uh, you know, in terms of when was it time for him to go the coach who succeeded him or the decision about what do you do about coach Orgeron and his staff uh, and all, you know, and then what are you going to do now? And uh, there's, you know, USC isn't that in tune. I think Don made a good point about somebody that's on, you know, a good, you know, in good standing with the NCAA. I mean, I don't know if you want to be in good standing with them because these are not the kind of people you want to feel like, wow, I'm one of them. But you want them to respect you and maybe fear you and understand that you aren't going to take it. Like Ohio State said when they got, you know, in the jackpot and they basically, you know, their president said, we're not going to let you do us what you did to USC. And the NCAA said, okay, we won't. and I think that's the kind of you got to have a relationship, I think. And um, you guys have been a little inward looking, hasn't hasn't listened to people. They could have, for example, the Sark thing didn't have to happen. The information was available. The information was known. They just they just discarded it and didn't pay attention to it. But I think there's a resistance. It's hard for me to believe that they will bring somebody in from the outside who will, as you say, start all over. That's just that's just not how USC does things. Uh, but now they've got to figure out how do they come up with a search that has credibility based on you know what's happened. Because uh, I mean, for example, you might get the right guy. And nobody would trust you to have gotten the right guy if you do it the same way. I mean, and, and maybe they'll get that one phone call that that's all they need and they'll get lucky. Or maybe they'll be lucky like they did, you know, like, uh, you know, Mike Garrett was, you know, with Pete is the fourth choice who happens to be down here visiting his daughter on the volleyball team. And, uh, you know, it just, they got lucky. And, um, um, can you expect them? I mean, they've had enough bad luck, you know, but I'm not saying that that's probably the way you want to go out and get your football coaches by hoping you're, uh, you're lucky this time. But will they go out for a new athletic director from the outside? Uh, that's, that's a really good question. <laughs> and I think, you know, if you could read, you know, Max's mind, I mean, one of the things I think, before the board of trustees wasn't as long, I don't know if it's like 55 people now, and there are an awful lot of people in there that probably don't pay a lot of attention to football and uh, are not from places where they even play football. And 
I'm not sure. I think in the old days, maybe there were more people on that board of trustees who really did care about football. So how does, you know, and yet football still is such a big deal, especially with the unveiling of how they're going to go with the Coliseum. And we're talking about maybe 500, you know, million dollars. And that's like real money. And, um, you know, I think they've got to make some really good decisions. I think that's all tied in together. I think that the athletic director and the future of the athletic department and the football coach and the Coliseum and all of that. And how do you get a, a good, you know, combination decision uh, of how you go forward in all those areas. And right now I'm not, I'm not sure that, that there is a, you know, a clear path and it's been muddied up a little bit more, you know, with the article um, in the um, L.A. Times on Saturday, you know, about Pat and Hayden and the uh, and the boards he serves on and how much time, uh, you know, he's giving to those and how much he's being paid to be on those boards and what's really going on here and is he spending a lot of time and he's earning his money or is he not spending a lot of time but he's still getting a lot of money and, you know, you're getting paid fifty thousand dollars a week from usc to be the athletic director the highest paid athletic director you know ever um for just you know the athletic director's job i think there was somebody at vanderbilt who was also like the chancellor of the law school that may have gotten more total compensation at one time but uh, nobody's ever been paid as much as you know as pat is being paid you know to be the athletic director at usc and uh you know for that for that $50,000 a week, should you get his total, you know, attention uh, to the job? Uh, I think there are a lot of people who would say yes. Uh, and, um, you know, so there's a whole lot of issues, uh, Don, in your, uh, you know, in, in your recommendations. And uh, is USC in a place where they can kind of, you know, implement, here's our plan, how would they come up with that plan? And who would they implement it with and all that? I mean, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a great question. It's a great suggestion. Uh, is USC able to do something about it? Um, I really have no idea. I mean, this is where it probably would help to have a president who had a more of a sense of, of college football or college athletics and, and not to say, you know, that, that that's to discredit, you know, you know, Max in this case, but this is the case where maybe the president really does have to, you know, it's got to be his decision. And um, unless, you know, maybe there are, you know, you could find, uh, you know, two or three people on that board of trustees who really, really, really care about it and really, really could come up with that kind of a game plan that they could get to Max and say, here's, here's what we think has to happen, you know, on this, you know, on this issue. And, uh, you know, maybe. But uh, I'm not that, you know, optimistic that it's there to be had right now uh, with everything constituted the way it is is right now. But, you know, you write the president, tell him what you think, <laughs> how it ought to happen. And if we could get enough people to do that, that couldn't hurt. Yeah. Uh, I, I really couldn't hurt. And I, I don't think – I think the thing we want to do is, is people get so – personally involved with it make this personal it wasn't personal about steve it's not personal about pat 
is not personal personal about anybody. It's what's best for USC, what's best for these athletes, what's best for the college community, uh, the university at, at large, what's best for the you know the students, what's best for the alumni, the fan base. Uh, I mean, I think you know there's a, an obligation to all of those you know communities, and uh, I think USC has to has to do right by them. And it, it can't just be personally. I mean, that was one of the things I thought where people got off the track is, is like, well, what about, you know, I know this is going to really hurt Sark or, you know, or, or people will say, this is really not fair to Pat. And I think there are times when it's way more than just any one, you know, person, uh, that it's, it's, it's really about a lot more than that. And, uh, so, but, you know, on the, like, you read the peristyle some days and it, it all becomes personal and it all becomes, you know, really argumentative about that kind of thing. And I don't know that that, that has any place here. It's just, you know, calmly thinking about what really is the best way to, <clears throat> to get through this and to come up with the best answers and the best results for USC and, uh, and not take it, you know, where, you know, you're a hater or you're a this or you're a that if you say this. It's uh, let's just try to figure this out and, and see how we can get it done. Um, Chad P from Tustin kind of had a similar question. So uh, thanks Chad for sending that in. We won't talk about Hayden anymore. I wanted to talk about the quickly try to get to the head coaching stuff. Um, we had two kind of questions from either side of this, and I think it's a good way to, to frame this for you, Dan. I'll read both of them. Steven said, is there any advantage to hiring a quote unquote big name coach over naming Clay Helton as a head coach, giving the team, continues to play and respond the way they do, and they did at times during the Notre Dame game and the entirety of the Utah game. In both games, USC came from behind and actually showed it could be competitive. And then Stephen Portland kind of has a different take. He says, I feel like it's Groundhog Day 2013 all over again. Let me say I'm very appreciative of the job Coach Helton has done under difficult circumstances. That said, I'm not sure why people want to hire him, even if USC happens to win out. USC is a top-five job and deserves a top-five coach. There's no reason to make an emotional hire and sell the program short just because he rallied the troops for half a season. I think my main trepidation with the possible hiring of Helton is fear will end up with the same staff currently in place. I think he would have to make wholesale changes to the staff to be successful and not just bring back old Kiffin assistants from 2013. What are your thoughts? Thanks and fight on. So that's Stephen Portland, and then Stephen had the other take. Well, I, mean, I think the coaching search goes in three kind of, three levels here as far as I'm concerned. I think <clears throat> you have the, you know, the really big splash, big name, uh, somebody who would immediately kick off the, you know, <clears throat> the 2016 season, which is already going to kick off with Nick Saban in Alabama. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think the classic example there is, is say Pete Carroll, no matter what anybody says, let's say Pete Carroll, after slogging through this season in Seattle, says, you know, unless I want to be Bill Belichick, unless I want to, you know, do whatever deal he's made with the devil to, uh, you know, try to stay on top year after year after year in a league where all the rules are designed to not let you do that, uh, you know, from the draft to the, you know, the whole salary cap and all the other stuff, uh, uh, what if Pete said, you know, and somebody made the case to Pete, look, you would impact our uh, fundraising so much for the Coliseum. You'd be, the, you know, you'd be the guy in L.A. again. 
you'd have a team at, you know, your first year, you could do something nobody in the history of coaching football from Newt Rockney to Bear Bryant to anybody has ever been able to manage to win national championships in college, go to the NFL, win the Super Bowl, should have won it twice, and then come back and do it again in college and, you know, give the, you know, big middle finger to the NCAA as well and uh, maybe do it in your first year back. So that's the one, the big splashy, you know, hire that you just don't, you know, does that guy exist? Does Pete exist, you know, for that purpose? Or is there that guy, that John Harbaugh or whatever, who just decides, you know, I'm getting $7 million a year to coach the Ravens, but what the heck, this is crazy. I'll, uh, you know. So you get that. That's the one one way you look at it. The other way you look at it are the two next probably great coaches in college football, and Tom Herman at Houston and Justin Fuente at uh, at Memphis. And they're the you know not that young you know but you know early 40s guys who proven themselves as much as you can possibly prove yourself at their age and with their experience. And you know are they tainted because Sark and Lane have tainted, you know, that kind of a, uh, you know, a guy, uh, you know, not enough experience. Sort of, you know, I don't think so at all. I think they're both going to be absolutely great, big-time, extremely successful college coaches who could be successful at USC. I don't, I don't think there's any question. So that's the other, you know, train. And then you've got the, you know, the Clay Helton. What if he does win out? What if he does, you know, get, get them? to the uh, championship game. What if they get Stanford and this time, you know, they could have, they didn't have to play a whole lot better that they could have been in that game. And they probably will be a whole lot better if that, if that all, that scenario happens. Then what do you do? Uh, you know, does, how does the Ed Orgeron situation play into, you know, at the, this time? I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, Kiffin and Sark and say, well, that, you know, does this for, you know, the, the young coaches or, you know, you look at the Ed Orgeron thing and said, you know, we'd have been better off, uh, you know, we'd have saved $7 million in transition costs and we've been a whole lot better off, you know, staff wise and, and everything else and embarrassment wise and what have you. If we just kept that in place and we didn't have to make a decision. So you got kind of, I think, three ways to look at it and, I don't think those are decisions that have to be made now. I think you ought to be somebody ought to be doing a lot of talking to qualify everybody that can be qualified. And I mean, really take it, you know, into your own hands. Whoever's the, the question is, who at USC can do this right now? Who is that guy that can make those calls and find out? Really, you know, we don't want you just using us to get a raise and all that. We really. And, and getting to know these people well enough so you could really, you know, understand who is there. And then you, you know, then you eventually have to pull the trigger and you say, this is the guy of all the people we've talked to, of all the people we considered, and we've given them all a fair shot, and we really, really want to know them and understand them. And this is the guy, whether he's an NFL guy, whether he's a big name, or whether he's the next big name, or whether he's the guy who gets you out of, you know, an unbelievably difficult situation this year at USC, you say, this is the best guy for this program right at this time. And, um, and that's, you know, 
that's not necessarily a quantitative decision where you, you know, check the boxes on how many years experience he's got or how many wins he's got. It's kind of a, a feel, uh, a sense of this guy fits this program perfectly. Uh, and um, who is the, who's the one that has to, you know, have that feel? Who's the one that's going to have that sense of, I mean, I think I, you know, Ryan and I, we think we know a lot about college football. I don't think I right now would have any idea who for sure would be that guy. I mean, I just think, you know, until you sit down with these guys and you really get the feel of who they are and how they would approach this job, uh, I mean, I'm really impressed with, you know, some of the people that are available. I was not that impressed last time, uh, two years ago. It just didn't seem like that cycle had the people that, you know, and you look now at some of the names and you think, you know, I'm not sure that they would have been the right guy uh, who got passed over. And, and we're not really sure that anybody really got a, a, a good look other than Sark. Uh, and obviously that's not the way to go. But, um, um, you know, I just think there are a lot of good candidates, but I don't think you can make a – you absolutely can't make a judgment on, on Clay Helton now. Obviously – you know, had they been better, would they be better off had Ed stayed? Yes. Would they be better off had Clay Helton stayed after the Las Vegas Bowl? Yes. Uh, you know, they didn't, you know, didn't go that way. It's amazing he's gotten another chance. I mean, you obviously see uh, what's happened in, in just a couple of weeks um, with having a, a really focused, professional, you know, head coach who's not got – Anything other, you know, going on other than how do I coach this football team and what kind of relationships do I have with my players, and uh, and you see what happens. Uh, is that enough for USC? I mean, one of the standards is when uh, Alabama was in trouble, they went and hired Nick Saban. Ohio State was in trouble, they went and hired Urban Meyer. Uh, Michigan's in trouble, they go out and hire Jim Harbaugh. Where does USC fit in that picture? There would be, you know, a lot of people who would say, um, you know, USC is equal or better in terms of history and tradition and impact, and you know, the football program of any of those. And none of those thought they couldn't go out and get the absolutely perfect guy, you know, for their program. Uh, why can't USC? I mean, I think that's got to be, you know, the standard. Now, what does that mean? is the question. What is that perfect guy, and how do you get to him? Um, but I don't think they should back off. For, you know, if somebody would say, give Pete Carroll $10 million, uh, make him the highest paid coach ever, and do all that kind of thing, and whether that actually would impact Pete or not, I don't know. But you might find out, and you say, hey, you know, in terms of fundraising, uh, immediate fundraising for the Coliseum, that would be paid off over and over and over again, uh, you know, with the enthusiasm uh, of, you know, of where that would take you. Is that the right way to go? I mean, I don't know that we know that absolutely for sure, uh, but, you know, it's a way, you know, you don't limit yourself. I don't think USC should limit itself uh, the way they did with the Sark hiring or even with the Lane Kiffin. I think there was such a focus on, oh, we've got to save the recruiting class. <clears throat> And I think we've learned since then that USC recruits for itself. USC recruits itself. Uh, 
you know, I mean, I think Sark came to USC and all of a sudden he became an absolutely great recruiter. And, and you know, not to denigrate any of that, USC is the great recruiter here. Uh, and, uh, and so I don't, I don't think they should make any calls based on, and we're not seeing that as much this time, based on recruiting uh, or, you know, immediate impact and that, that kind of thing. USC is going to be fine uh, recruiting. Hey, they recruited great in the 90s. You know, I mean, I think when a lot, you know, when I started, you had Carson Palmer and Troy Palomalo, you know, recruited by, you know, Paul Hackett. Uh, so USC can recruit. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, now they got to figure out, you know, and recruit the next coach. And that, that doesn't come as easily. No, that's the biggest recruiting job of all. Um, yeah. But thanks, Dan. Great stuff. We got a lot to get to. And so hopefully everyone enjoyed the show. And uh, thanks for getting everyone's questions. I know there was a lot of stuff there, but USC focused on Cal this week. We'll talk to you more this week during practice, Dan, about the Cal game and how this team moved forward. But thanks again for coming on. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And, uh, man, love the questions. Keep them coming, you guys. Yeah, great stuff. And uh, thanks, everyone else, for tuning into the Peristyle Podcast. I'm going to try to do – we'll do, a, like, a preview show this week. I'll probably – I might do a solo one with some of the other questions. So check back on peristylepodcast.com. We'll talk to you next time. And here's a quick message from Michael Moline Real Estate. Most people know that buying or selling real estate is no small undertaking. Understanding the market value of your home, pricing, advertising, closing, and perhaps even selling personal property along the way are all examples of the real estate journey. And Michael Moline Real Estate has the experience to help make that journey an enjoyable one. Southern California real estate inventories are at historic lows, so there is no better time than now to sell your residential property. Whether you're moving into a bigger home or downsizing, personal property is often a component of the real estate transaction. Michael Moline Real Estate has industry expertise to help you with both your real property and your personal property as you get ready to transition. Michael Moline Real Estate specializes in properties located on the west side of Los Angeles and the southern San Fernando Valley communities. Allow Michael Moline Real Estate to give you a free comparative market analysis and home valuation so you know how much your home is worth today. Contact Michael Moline at michaelmolinerealestate.com That's Michael, M-O-L-I-N-E realestate.com You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 